Chapter Twenty Nine of the Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Twenty Nine. There was a usual swarm of boats lying over the banks, hauling in lines and nets. The air was raw and foggy, and there was a light swell. There is good fishing today, Peter Jusansa shouted across to the seal, and Christophe agreed with him. The nets were full of cod, and there would be thousands in the boat if they went on as they had begun. "'The air is awfully still,' cried a Nordlander, looking all round. "'There is a certain kind of stillness that makes the fisherman listen, and when one headman assumes a listening attitude, it is taken up in boat after boat, until all are trying, as it were, to find the scent. In fog every sound is suspicious,' and now the cold sea-mist began to move and drift in a south-easterly direction, and that meant wind. Listen! Already there was a strange roar. "'We shall be having a visitor,' shouted a Nordland man, as he hauled and hauled at his nets to get them in time. They must make for land at once. "'Hurry up, men!' shouted Peter Jusansa. In all the boats the men were working their hardest, hauling for their very lives. They knew this roar that was growing louder and louder, and their energy and their anxiety spread from boat to boat over miles and miles of sea. Make haste! A storm is coming! This time it came so quickly that there was hardly time to do anything before the boats were in the midst of it tossing up and down upon huge, foaming billows. It was impossible to draw in the nets. The boats would only have been swamped. Knives were pulled from their sheaths, and the nets cut off, the long chains of nets with all their burden of fish disappearing in the foaming water. The next moment a little sail was hoisted. Would it be possible to tack in toward land? The boat was driven along over waves like rolling mountains, the sail disappeared into a deep valley, and a new wave appeared to be breaking over the very top of the mast, but the next moment the little boat again mounted into view. The men on board were drenched to the skin and bailed for their lives. They all knew that in such a storm it was impossible to tack toward land. The only hope of safety was in sailing away before the wind and wave, at haphazard over the sea, as far as God willed. They ran before the wind, but the boats lay deep in the water with the weight of several hundred fish, so that the waves broke over the stern and made it useless to bail. The headman shouted an order that was repeated in shouts forward, and three men fell upon the fish and threw the precious cargo overboard, as if they were sacrificing to the sea to save their lives. Even now, when every one had enough to do in looking after himself, Comrade boats tried to keep in touch with one another. Peter Susansa, on the sea-fire, saw in front of him the seal's brown sail, now high on the crest of a wave, then descending into a deep valley. Would it appear again? Yes, there it was. It grew dark, and the sky was all black scudding clouds. The wind whirled the spray into the air, where it tore about like wild white wraiths, 
and the little sails were scattered and driven like storm-lashed birds in an ever wilder and wilder flight where were they going no one knew when would they be able to turn no one knew sometime to-night or sometime to-morrow they would perhaps be shattered upon a rocky cliff on the mainland perhaps the wind would drive them seaward for days perhaps in another moment their boat would capsize and then there would be nothing more it was the first time christaver had sailed the seal close reefed the sail was now as small as it could be and did not reach halfway up the mast and yet it was too large it would be wrong to say that christaver was enjoying himself but at last he was out with his boat in downright earnest and how would it end he had a huge pocket-book in his breast-pocket and was responsible for four other lives on board in cautious steering the miscalculation of a wave half a second in which his eyes were not everywhere and the next moment they might be clinging to the keel of a capsized boat it was not this however which occupied him most it was the boat she had capsized three winters in succession but it was impossible to discover wherein the fault lay there was some hidden cause which he would perhaps be able to extract from her now as he stood in the drenching spray and the darkness with his whole being intent upon the management of the boat he felt that something was wanting in his mastery of her and that at any moment she might play him a trick the trough of that wave for instance if the stern were to be lifted so high that the rudder for one second hovered in the air the boat would broach too and then where would they be take care take care there it was again something wanting insecurity in the rigging and boat confound it he clenched his teeth it was as though he and the boat were wrestling for the mastery Lars stood by the mast minding the priar this was important now that they were scudding before the gale his southwester was pulled down over his ears and tied under his chin to prevent it flying away and his eyes were fixed on his father every word that the headman shouted might mean life or death slack the priad his father shouted slack the priad all the men repeated and Lars hung on to the rope and carried out the order and then once more fixed his eyes on his father standing with a tiller in his hand his face intent his eyes everywhere when a wave tossed the stern into the air the headman seemed to be flying heavenward then they rode with the crest of the wave under the middle of the boat and the water all round them was lashed into greenish-white foam making it seem quite light on board then the stern sank again and his father with it into the depths and Lars was on the point of shouting are you coming up again father but there he stood just as calmly at the tiller ready to meet a new mountain of water and now he rose again and Lars felt as if he had got his father back once more the boy began to repeat hymns for all good spirits must help his father to-night and if things went wrong he was with his father at any rate and if they ever got to land he would never leave him never do anything to displease him they sailed on they knew not whither whether it was to be right across the west fjord or out into the ocean or straight upon a rock god alone knew
Even if they had had a compass on board, it would have been impossible to see it, and to strike a match in this weather. Now and then they heard cries that were not from birds but from human beings, human beings clinging to the keel of an upturned boat. It could not be helped. Tonight every one had to do the best he could for himself, and those who still sailed knew that numbers of capsized boats were floating on the sea for miles round, and that those who clung to their keels must go on crying for help, for no one could heed them. They sailed on and on. Darker it could not be, but it could get rougher. They could no longer distinguish between clouds and sea. The very heavens seemed to be falling upon them in white foam. No, it was a gigantic wave, and the wind broke the crest of it and sent the spoon-drift flying about like white wraiths. Would the boat clear it? She did, but was almost swamped, and the men bailed and bailed until the next wave came. They sailed on, but it seemed to Lars that they were no longer on the sea, but flying through a weird, dark region in which foaming billows pursued them like green and white hobgoblins. They howled and tried to reach them, twisting and turning in a wild death dance, flinging themselves upon the boat from behind, from above, from the side, coming suddenly out of the depths to dance round her with foam-flecked faces all round, everywhere. And his father stood on the thwart and was still keeping them off. How long would he be able to manage it? This was a long night. The waves kept dashing over Kristaver, sometimes nearly knocking him down, but he nevertheless began to feel pleasure in his boat. She yielded so plainly to the waves and cleared the most incredible billows, and every time he would have liked to pat her as one would a good horse and cry, "'Well done, seal!' Was it possible for the wind to be worse? Great chasms seemed to be rent in the raging sky, and out of them darted fire, and the long yellow stormy gleams threw weird reflections over the seething waters. When the boat rose on the crest of a billow, and was borne along at its dizzy pace, it was almost as if she rose out of the water and flew through the air, as if even the keel lost touch with the water, with that on which the boat must keep a firm hold and it was at such a moment that the seal first dived down into the trough of a wave, then broached to, and capsized. The waves dashed over her, but now she was floating bottom upward. There were cries from five men as she turned over. They were drowned in the roar of the wind and the waves, and that seemed to be the end. But no, two men were already hanging to the shrouds, the sea tossed the boat along, and two more who had been under her came up and held on to the shroud on the other side. Where was the fifth? Mechanically and half-stunned, the four men dragged themselves upon the boat, sitting astride over the keel to which they clung, so as not to be washed away. They had swallowed sea-water and had been battered by the waves and the boat, and they had lost their gloves and southwesters. Christophe had a feeling that Lars had come up, but he could not help crying out, "'Are you there, Lars?' "'Yes, father,' came the answer. "'Hold tight.' "'Yes, father.' One man was missing, however, 
but Christophe had caught sight of a boot that was flung against the side of the boat, and managed to get hold of it, though he almost fell off into the water, in doing so. It was Cornelis that he pulled up, and the man must have received a blow against the boat, for he was unconscious and made no attempt to hold on. No thought of letting go of him crossed Christophe's mind. He would just have to cling with one hand to the keel, although it was as much as the others could do to hold on with both hands. A capsized boat on the Lofoten Sea is an ordinary thing, and they knew it. They were swept along, now high on the crest of a wave, now deep in the trough. It was an ordinary thing to be drowned on a night such as this, and they knew it but they nevertheless held on tight because every second was a second more to live, and they cried wild, agonizing cries for help, and the cry was the same from them all. Lord God, help! Help! Every new wave that came foaming toward them was perhaps death itself, and involuntarily they crouched down before it to diminish the force of the blow. They cried again, though they knew there was no possibility of rescue. They cried in an agony of fear that stifled reason. They cried like animals that feel the piercing knife. Their cries rose above the roaring sound of the wind, but no one answered. The waves broke over them incessantly as they sat, flinging them hither and thither in the darkness. After a time, Christaver recollected that the boat would lie more quietly if he could cut the shrouds on one side, so that the mast could float up. "'Lay hold here!' he shouted to Henry Robin, as he pushed Cornelis over to him. Henry gripped his unconscious comrade and held him fast. "'Catch hold of my boot!' Christophe shouted to Arndt Osson, who instantly let go his hold of the keel with one hand and grasped the headman's foot. Christophe then drew his knife from its sheath and let himself slip down over the side of the boat, and as a wave washed over his head, he heard Lars cry, "'Oh, father, take care!' He soon came up again, however, with his knife between his teeth. The shrouds were severed and in another moment the mast shot up from beneath the boat. But he had made a serious mistake. He had cut the shrouds on the lee side, and the mast came up on the weather side and was immediately carried toward them on the top of a wave. If it hit any of them, it would be certain death. It might sweep all five of them off at one stroke. No, it struck the boat with a resounding blow, and then retired to gather strength upon a new wave. "'Catch hold of my leg again!' cried Christopher, and once more hung head downward in the waves and cut through the shrouds on the other side too. The mast was now free. It was driven once more against the boat, but without hitting anyone, then retired again, carried away upon the waves, with one end sticking up into the air, and finally disappeared from sight in the spray. The boat tossed less now, and the four men sat holding the fifth between them. Until now they had not known that they were drenched to the skin, and so perished with cold that their teeth chattered. They had not felt that the flying spray so blinded them that they could hardly see one another. End of chapter 29